And welcome back into the Bama Beat Podcast, brought to you by Wickles Pickles. Once again, this is your host, Clint Lamb, sitting here once again with Brett Hudson. Brett, how you doing this morning, brother? Well, uh, I didn't give up 289 rushing yards to South Carolina, so I guess I'm doing better than Vandy. <laughs> Are we really taking shots at Vandy's defense right now? That's, that's fair. That's fair. Now, now before, before we get to that, <laughs> I, I did actually look this up because I, I found this number interesting. South Carolina has run for 289 yards or more seven times since 2000. Three of those seven came against Power 5 schools, and all three of them were against Vandy. South Carolina ran for 339 yards on Vandy in 2000, 356 yards on Vandy in 2001, and 289 yards on Saturday. So uh, remember when Derek Mason was all – up in his feelings and sticking his chest out at the end of last year about people say they want this job. I'm built for this job. People don't really want this job. I think he's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't take the Vandy <laughs> job ever. Yeah. And it's unfortunate too, because in comparison, when you're in a conference like the SEC and you're Vanderbilt and you're not willing to invest in your facilities and, and you're, you've got the academic standards that have to be, you know, upheld, which is understandable. Uh, but it's just, it's a terrible com- uh, combination of things. And, and I don't see it getting any better anytime soon, but yeah. uh, uh, man, yeah. SEC defenses in general, to be fair to Vanderbilt, you know, they're, they're all pretty bad. Yeah, so uh, if you're ever in a position to take to take the Vandy football job, don't don't do that. Um, if you're ever in a position for whatever reason to uh, run the football against uh, the Vanderbilt defense, certainly take that, especially if you play for South Carolina. Would would highly highly recommend that. But uh, hey, speaking of uh, football teams that don't play very good defense, this is an Alabama football podcast. It is, and uh, they, yeah, yeah, you're kind of hitting the nail on the head here. And granted, we're we're going to be um, talking about the Alabama Georgia game tomorrow. We're, we're right now we're in recap mode, so you'll be getting our kind of uh, thoughts on what happened. So we'll kind of just dive right in, Brett. You know, you're watching that game. You're at the game, even though you know you've been accused of not watching the game. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it, as you were not watching and you were on your phone right. and you were looking up every once in a while, what did, what were some of your kind of thoughts or takeaways from the game? Man, I was killing Angry Birds. You don't even know during that game. Oh, that game still exists, huh? Uh, I don't know, man. I don't know. Um, I'm just steering into the bit. Um, so, uh, we're not, we're not blind. We, we know we're, we're coming to you after Ole Miss and Lane Kiffin put up a record number of yards against Alabama. Um, the, the most under the, the Nick Saban, under Nick Saban's leadership, I I should say it tied the high for, for the most points scored on a Nick Saban Alabama defense with 48, 48, the, the record yardage total was 600 and 47. Um, yeah, we're we're doing this. You and I have been, I don't want to say we've defended Pete Golding, but I, I think we've tried to, what's the right, what's the right phrase here? Maybe give him a chance. Uh, I feel yeah. like last year was unfair. Yeah, that, that's probably the, the right way for it. And I'll, I'll let you speak your piece of that regard. But I think I'm done with that. I I used to be of the belief that Pete Golding would still had a chance to work out long term. And I'm, I'm just not, I'm not sure that I believe that 
anymore. And some of it is personal execution and some of it is scheme. So when it comes to the personal execution side, we'll get to the, the scheme and the signal stuff, stealing stuff later. But starting with personal execution, that, that obviously manifests itself most in tackling. And I, I want to set the context for this conversation with a quote from Pete Golding from his preseason press conference on August 20th. Here's the quote. From an offseason standpoint, obviously we dove in from a defensive standpoint, whether it was missed tackles or mental errors or whatever it is, why and how we how do we fix it? It's one thing to understand what it was, but how do you fix it? I think that was the biggest thing this offseason and all the studies that we did is make sure we're going back. All right, did we have that drill set up? All these missed tackles, a lot of them are in similar situations. Well, did we drill it? Did we put them in the situation? How can we do a better job of coaching and preparing the kids to where we get the product that we want on Saturday? End quote. That is Pete Golding on August 20th. As we said last week, tackling is not something that should be sharp from the opening kickoff. If you're a great tackling team in week one, you're setting yourself up for failure later in the season. But especially when you put yourself, put an emphasis on it in the preseason, it should get better incrementally. And it's not going to be a straight line of improvement. That's not how life works. And that's definitely not how life works when your entire clientele is 18 to 22 year old dudes. But you should be getting better over time. It should be better in week three than it was in week one. It should be better in week eight than it was in week five. And I, I find it hard to believe anyone would argue that tackling has gotten better from week one to week three. And frankly, I think most people would, would agree with me that it's gotten worse. So I, I think that's the part that's really sticking with me. And, and I want to be clear, this is not 100% Pete Golding's fault. To, to go back to that bad play Daniel Wright made on the sideline against Texas A&M that led to the touchdown. I'm pretty confident in saying Pete Golding didn't teach him to do that. I'm pretty confident Charles Kelly didn't teach him that. And I'm probably his high school coaches didn't teach him that. And there are other examples of, of players just doing things they aren't coached to do. That happens at this level. But again, if this is a self-defined point of emphasis, there should be at least some incremental improvement. And right now there just isn't. He, as and I did the same thing with Jalen Hurts, uh, and and really for a while there I did the same thing um, with, with Scott Cochran, where in mm-hmm. the two the reason that I use those two examples is this, when when Jalen Hurts was going into his sophomore year and Tua Tagovailoa was kind of trying to get himself you know involved in the quarterback battle as a true freshman, you know fans were already starting to turn before the season even started on Jalen Hurts. They they wanted to go ahead and go to uh, Tua Valoa. I said. We need to give Jalen Hurts a chance. You know, you have big improvement. He was a true freshman last year, actually won SEC uh, Offensive Player of the Year or Player of the Year, whichever it was. Uh, and, you know, we need to give him a chance to make that year one to year two jump. He goes out against Florida State. He looks very pedestrian as far as the, the statistically speaking. Everybody's calling for Tua to be the starter. And I go back and I watch the film and I see a lot of things that, that were was not playing in Jalen Hurts' favor that was yeah. not Jalen Hurts' fault. And so I continued to bang the drum of guys. The, you know, I understand statistically, if you're looking at statistics and you're making a, a judgment call on Jalen Hurts based off of that, that's the incorrect way to go about this because there are other factors involved here that are that are playing into this. The, but where I started to come around is at a certain point when you see these issues continue to crop up week after week, you got to start saying, okay, it doesn't look like it's Jalen Hurts' fault in a lot of these situations, but 
it, at the same time, at what point does it start to become his fault? And that's kind of, you know, with Scott Cochran and the injuries, you know, he had, he had been Alabama strength and conditioning coach since, you know, Nick Saban got to Alabama and, and he had had a lot of success and he had done things the correct way. And then Alabama, you know, several years into his tenure as the strength and conditioning coach, you start seeing injuries crop up more. People are saying it's Scott Cochran's fault. I, you know, I'm sitting there saying, well, I mean, why, what's he doing different now that he wasn't doing, you know, a, a few years ago and, and things like that. I kind of defended the guy, but as this became a year over year type of situation, you start to say, okay, the X factor here is Scott Cochran. He's got for one reason or another. I don't know what, what it, I, I can't really make that correlation for you, but there's some, there's gotta be some kind of correlation there. He goes on to Georgia. They bring in the new strength and conditioning staff. Knock on wood, but Alabama's been pretty solid as far as injuries are concerned so far. Now, some of that has to do with the way that they readjusted how they approached the offseason. You didn't have as much of an offseason. You didn't have spring training for guys to get banged up and injured. That's typically a pretty physical time. Uh, it's a teaching time for for Nick Saban and the coaching staff, but it's also, you know, there's some physicality in there, too, because if a guy does get banged up, you got plenty of time to heal up for the season. But the point being is, is we're getting there with Pete Golding. There are factors in pl- at play here where you can say, okay, on in a singular game, the, the, I don't really think this is Pete Golding's fault. But when it's stacking week over week and now it's become an extended problem, you got to start saying, okay, something Pete Golding is doing. And I will continue to reiterate, this is not just Pete Golding. I know Alabama fans want to give Nick Saban the the you know all the passes in the world but I've never been one of those people and I guarantee you Nick Saban's not I mean he's already kind of accepted responsibility but it's the same way you know back even dating to the Paul Bear Bryant days where you know you can't give somebody all the praise when things go are, are going right but you give them none of the blame when things are going wrong and so you do have to put some of the responsibility because if you don't think there's a reason that that uh Nick Saban thinks it's possible that Lane Kiffin had their defensive signals. And why would that be? Because they're Nick Saban's signals. They're not Pete Golding's. And if they were Pete Golding's, Pete Golding got there after Lane Kiffin. Those things would have been changed and Lane Kiffin wouldn't have had access to it. So to sit here and say, well, Nick Saban doesn't really have anything to do with the struggles on defense. Nick Saban's watching how they're learning how to tackle. He's, he, he's, he's very much involved in that process. He's teaching them. The, the the fact that the defense right now I think is a little bit overcomplicated and they need to simplify things. I think that also has you know Nick Saban has a has a hand in that. He determines how uh, you know um, difficult the defense is to learn and how many things they're throwing at guys. And what you saw against Ole Miss is you saw guys who are lost. And I think guys not playing confidently because they don't know what to do leads to poor tackling technique. I think that because you're just not playing confidently and that le- I mean, I've played the game myself and, and any time that I've been confused, I can remember when I was a sophomore in high school and, and I was getting my first start. It was my only start that season because I didn't play that great. And the reason <laughs> being is because when I was out there, there's uh, the, the offense that we were going against was throwing a lot of different things at us and I was not playing confidently. I was missing tackle because I was unsure. And if you're not sure, you're unsure even when you're trying to make the tackle, you know, so it's there, there's correlation there they need to simplify things get guys back to playing confidently but but yes Pete Golding certainly schematically there were plenty of times where guys were in position and so Pete Golding did his job and had the guy there ready to make the play but the guy couldn't make the play and you can that some of that responsibility needs to be put on the player but you can also sit there and say well Pete Golding's also teaching guys how to tackle and he's involved in that process along with several others 
and and it's that whatever they're teaching is not getting the job done because they're not able to consistently bring guys down. Now let's not also not act like that this is an issue that is specific to Alabama because other elite defenses, LSU. Now they had a lot of turnover, but Florida. Uh, I mean, really, right now, and I can't even really tell you that Georgia's defense is, is is elite and the best in the country. I think that it is, but the offenses they've played do not really – they're not going to be the, the kind of offenses where you can say, okay, you know, I know for sure that Georgia's really, really good because it's not an Ole Miss style of offense. It's not a Florida style of offense. It's not what Alabama's going to be throwing at them this weekend. And if Georgia steps up to the plate and they even – you know, if they win half the battles against Alabama's offense, I think that's a huge win for Georgia and proves that they're one of the elite defenses in the country. But there's a lot of factors at, at play here, and Pete Golding certainly is the problem uh, to to some degree. But there's a lot more issues uh, going in, into this as well. So it mentioned you mentioned the signal stealing thing in there, and we'll get to that in a second. But I wanted to expand on your point about simplifying the defense. I don't I just I don't have sympathy for for Alabama in that regard, because, again, that is something that Pete Golding himself talked about in the preseason. I've, I've got the quote. Uh, I'm, I'm pulling it up right now. Um, here we go. Obviously, it's easy to look back <clears throat> and say, well, no, here we go. Got it. All right. It's but looking back at it, it's understanding, hey. Who's our personnel? What have we got? How can we simplify this thing to let these kids play fast? And the biggest thing, how can we eliminate explosive plays, mental errors, and still be disruptive? And and that's just one quote in what Golding kind of mentioned several times on that day of understanding that you can't just throw players on the field in this scheme on all downs and, and and let them execute what they're good at and not execute what they're not good at because there's so much talent on the offensive side of the ball and there's so much mental excellence from offensive coaches in this league that if you put someone out there who can't execute the concepts you're running, the coaches are going to identify that. They're going to pick on that guy when you're running that concept. And they're going to force you to run it based on your tendencies, and they're going to pick on that guy when you do run it over and over and over again and continue to exploit you for huge explosive plays and continue to score on you on basically every single possession, as Ole Miss almost did. Um, the, the tight end and the running backs catching passes has been a significant problem for Alabama in the last two weeks, and I'm going to write about that more um, later today. So that will be on Tidesports.com first thing Tuesday morning, I'm guessing. Um, so I, I just don't have much sympathy for for Alabama in, in that regard either, because much like it, I, I kind of have to ride the same point as tackling as I do on this. Right. If if you're going to prioritize this kind of thing, it's your job to, to make sure there is incremental improvement in that regard. It, 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 we haven't seen it in tackling. And if you're also going to prioritize having your scheme more or at least being more careful and intelligent in which parts of the scheme you give to which players and how you use them situationally, you, you got to see incremental improvement in that regard. And, and the Ole Miss game didn't provide that. Do you have anything else on the complex nature of Alabama's defensive scheme before we move on to the signal stealing thing? Uh, the only thing that I'll add, and it's not really the complexity part of it, but it's, it, it's the, 
I don't think that there's a direct correlation between, you know, hurry up offenses and, and defenses struggling. We've had this talk and debate. Yeah, that's that's totally complete garbage. That's yeah, absolutely and what, but what I will say is when you're the defense and Ole Miss's offense was on the field for 89 plays in this game uh, and Alabama in the second half, when the defense has already been struggling, they score a touchdown in a minute and 15 seconds, two uh, minutes and 28 seconds, uh, a minute 31 uh, you know, 20 seconds. They're putting up touchdowns and they're scoring extremely quickly. They had two drives that lasted more than three minutes, and they they both of those two drives lasted less than four. Uh, and and when you're doing that, when the defense is they're they're getting gassed as it is, staying on the field, they can't get off the field on third down. When they do get off or are supposed to get off the field on third down, uh, Ole Miss is going for it on fourth and getting it. Um, they're they're putting up points. They're allowing sustained drives, and then you're turning around and you're Alabama. Uh, you finally get a break to go on. Uh, the defense finally gets a break to go on the sidelines. Offense comes out and they score in a minute and a half. And you're like, man, we got to go right back out here. That can affect you. And, and that's, the, you know, and now granted things were bad from the get go. So it wasn't like Alabama was super tired. Uh, and that was the whole reason they were tackling po- uh, yeah, the, the, the they, tackling efficiency they, they was poor. Tired when, they weren't tired when Ole Miss marched down the field at four plays on the opening drive of the game. Exactly. And so we can't sit there and say that there's no correlation, but at the same time, you can also acknowledge the fact that anybody that's on the field for, for 89 plays and you're not getting many breaks and it's a lot of back and forth stuff and it's spreading you out and making you run. These plays aren't uh, a Georgia style of offense from a couple of years ago. They're going to try to just hammer you play after play with inside runs where if you're a corner, you're not getting wore out. If you're a corner, you're turning and, and running with guys a lot. You're you're having to cover a lot of ground. If you're a defensive lineman, bigger guys, you're running sideline to sideline. They're hitting you with screens. They're getting things out quick. You know, they're 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 passing the ball pretty much at will. And if you're a defensive lineman to even remotely be involved in the play, you got to turn around and, and sprint, you know, 20 yards down the field to try to make it. That's going to wear you out. So that does factor in some, but it's not – if anybody that I've seen point to that as being the issue, it can't be because they did this from the very get-go of the game, so we have to acknowledge that. I, I would actually push back on you a, a little bit on that in that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, of a more extreme line of thinking than, than you are. I, I've – I've run these numbers. I did a, a, a whole story on it last year. There's there's just little to no correlation between offensive tempo and defensive excellence. There there's just there there is just no common thread to show that if you go fast on offense, your defense is going to suffer. There the the, the number just is not there. There's no core. There's little to no correlation there. So I, I just. I don't have much sympathy for for that. Uh, again, the the numbers have have been pretty clear in in that regard. There, there's also a kind of a, a bigger question to to ask, and maybe we can do that at the end of this podcast, or um, or, or maybe in one in the future, maybe tomorrow or whenever. Uh, like, would Nick Saban's defensive scheme be effective at the level that it used to be if it were simplified? Like I, I no, I, no. Uh, I don't know the answer. It's kind of a a macro question that maybe we can dive into later on. Um, the signal stealing thing. Uh, I imagine anyone who is interested enough in Alabama football to seek out a podcast about it probably knows about this. But uh, I don't know. Maybe your phone went to be with Coach Bryant on Sunday. For those of you that missed it, um, Nick Saban said after the game and talking about adjustments that Alabama made during the game that. 
It seemed like Ole Miss constantly had the right play for for whatever defensive check they made and, and wondered if Ole Miss had Alabama's defensive signals, which Nick said is not uncommon. Uh, then Dylan Moses followed that up and, and said he thought that Ole Miss definitely had um, had Alabama's defensive signals. Um, and, and Lane Kiffin tweeted about it on Sunday, saying that at the uh, at the way at the tempo that they operate their offense, having the opposing defenses signals isn't really a feasible advantage for them because they're going so fast that they don't really have the time to to decode, decode those things and then adjust once they once they have the answer. What what did you think of all of that nonsense? I think that there are certain situations where having them could be advantageous if you're all miss and mm-hmm. but that does not mean that you're utilizing it on every snap. Um, there there might be key situations where you have to slow things down. It's a big third down conversion or a big fourth down conversion and if you have their signals and you know what they're doing, you can utilize it at that point. <laughs> So, so it can play. It can be true in the in the sense that it it helped, but it was not on a down to down basis. Uh, like they, you know, because the way Nick Saban kind of fra- uh, framed it, he was essentially saying every time that we had something dialed up, uh, Ole Miss had the perfect thing to counter it. Well, I would I would think that you know he's using every time. Uh, he's he's talking about specific situations. You know, on those key third downs, on those key fourth downs. Uh, where, where you're trying to dial something up and, and, and Ole Miss just has the perfect counter to it, there could be some truth there. I, I don't know. I, and I certainly you know, have started to go back. I've mostly watched the defense so far. And there are you know, situations where what Alabama did have uh, you know, called, it, it made sense given down and distance and, and the things that Alabama does well and, and the types of guys. But Ole Miss did have the absolute perfect counter for it. And and at a certain point, you know, statistically, you, I mean, how many is it before, you know, if, if they call the perfect play a million times, can we now say, okay, more than likely they're, you know, they've got some kind of advantage that we don't know about, but obviously you're not going to run a million plays, but at what point do you start to say, okay, maybe there is something here, but it wasn't on a, every single down. They, they are, they know exactly what Alabama is going to be doing. That's not what Nick Saban or Dylan Moses meant. I, I kind of, I, I saw the same thing that, that you saw. There were definitely very specific in, moments in the game where it looked like Ole Miss changed their offensive play two, sometimes three times before the snap of the football. So it right. would it would make sense that they were probably acting on something more than just intuition or tendencies found in, in film study, right? Um, and and a lot of people very accurately pointed out. I, I think my favorite one was from Sam Adams, who is the head coach at, at Hillcrest High School here in Tuscaloosa. Shouts to Shouts to Coach Adams. His his response on Twitter was no defense in the country signals their call in before the offense signals their play, which is absolutely accurate. So yes, in, yes. in most cases, even if Ole Miss did have Alabama's defensive signals, it, it probably wouldn't have helped them on most snaps because as as Lane correctly pointed out, they were operating at a high tempo to, to the point where they, they wouldn't really have the time to adjust to a defensive call, they would have already snapped the ball in, in the time they would have uh, taken to, to do that. Although there were some scenarios, some particular plays where it, it sure looked like they were, they were changing their play multiple times before the snap of the ball and in, in ways that would 
suggest information was at hand other than what was gained via intuition and, and film study. But what really stuck out to me about that was, Clint, there's no way you know this number. In between the number of days in between the last game Lane Kiffin coached at Alabama and Saturday's game, there were 1,379 days in the last game Lane coached at Alabama and the game he coached against Alabama on Saturday. If you didn't change your defensive signals, I mean, conservatively, like four times in that stretch, but more realistically, like six or seven, if you didn't change your defensive signals multiple times in that time span, uh, to, to kind of use the the tweet that uh, that Tommy Dees, our, our editor in the state of Alabama, said, at that point, you're not having your defensive signals stolen as much as you're giving them away. <laughs> That's actually a great point. Like, and that was how the- how can the dude who hasn't been in your program in one thousand three hundred and seventy nine days still know your defensive signals? And that right there is exactly why I say that Nick Saban brought that up for a reason. And and if they, if they would have changed uh, things up, I don't think Nick Saban's making that comment. So I don't know what the defensive signals for Alabama are, but it sounds to me like they have not been changed. But it sounds like everyone on planet Earth knows them. Yes, it, you would you would have to at this point if if you've just if you're just you know and and how in the world. Are you Nick Saban and you've seen Lane Kiffin, you've seen Kirby Smart, you've seen Jeremy Pruitt, you've seen all these coaches go to other SEC programs that you're going to be facing uh, consistently every single year. And you've decided, you know what, if they want to take our signals with them, totally fine. Because it's not like it's overly difficult to change your signals up. There are teams who do it on a weekly basis uh, on a much higher level, but still – to a point where I, I completely agree. If you've gone that long and you and and, it, and I don't think that it's completely the exact same thing that it was, you know, back when Kiffin was around. But I think there is enough similarity that that Ole Miss and Lane Kiffin in particular would know what to look for in certain situations. And if that's the case, that's something that if you're Nick Saban and, and the rest of that defensive coaching staff. You've got I, I think by that point you're doing a disservice to your players because you've essentially you haven't handed your playbook necessarily to the opposing offensive staff, but you have essentially given them a, a fairly sizable advantage that they can utilize. And especially if you're a Georgia that's a lot slower of a tempoed offense, you wonder. You know, uh now granted Georgia hadn't been outstanding offensively against Alabama necessarily. But they have dominated Alabama and for the majority of the, of the two games that they've played. And at the same time, Alabama was able to win both. But you would argue, I mean, it's just been a few minutes total in both those contests that Alabama actually had the lead. Uh, so at that point, is, is Kirby Smart doing the same thing? Uh, I've never heard Nick Saban say anything like that. Now, I get why he said it for this game in particular, because he's right. There was a lot of very strange coincidences where you say, man, that just was extremely fortunate. They had the perfect play call for what Alabama called with, whether it be sending a blitz, finding the hot route, knowing that it was there. It, there was just a lot of scenarios where it, it just seemed, wow, that's just it, – you can't even say that that's awesome offensive play calling uh, necessarily as, as it's – you know, Lane Kiffin has to know Nick Saban. 
Nick Saban, by the way, not Pete Golding, because he wouldn't know Pete Golding's tendencies because they didn't coach together. So if Pete Golding's calling the defense, he didn't have the the, the tendencies uh, of, a, of a Pete Golding. Like he, you could maybe make the argument he would have with Nick Saban where, oh, I just know how he's thinking in these certain situations and what he wants to do. If it's Pete Golding that's calling it, then Lane Kiffin wouldn't have that advantage. So there's I don't know. Uh, I couldn't tell you definitively one way or the other at this point. You did enough wrong yourself. Uh, that that really all you really have to blame is yourself, and then also it, it also falls on your shoulders if you've allowed them to to make you know stealing your signals that easy by not changing things up over several years. So at the end of the day, it's still Alabama's fault. I, I absolutely, I, I completely agree. So I don't have much sympathy for that one either. And I have one more point on scheme of of defense um, <clears throat> taking schematic L's. To Lane Kiffin really doesn't bother me all, all that much. You, you'd like it to be less of a schematic butt whooping than it was, but Lane Kiffin is going to outscheme a lot of people. As, as Alabama fans know firsthand from his tenure here, he is genuinely an offensive masterminded. And honestly, whoever replaces Pete Golding, whether that's next year, ten years from now, or somewhere in between, Lane's probably going to outscheme that guy too. That's that's what he does. And, and the same applies to. To, to a lesser extent, to Jimbo Fisher for some of the explosive play issues that popped up in, in that game last week. Jimbo Fisher and Lane Kiffin are offensive minds to a level that pretty much anyone who is Alabama's defensive coordinator now or in the future is probably going to get out schemed by them in, in some regards. You would like it to be less of a well-rounded mental beatdown than, than Lane Kiffin v. Pete Golding was last week. But it's going to happen sometimes. What really stuck with me and is uh, is big to an extent uh, of kind of changing my mind on this Pete Golding thing is tempo. Dude, defending tempo is the lifestyle now. This is something you do every week. This is not something that is different in a given week and you have to adjust to it like a curveball. This is your lifestyle. Defending tempo should be in your DNA in everything that you do. Cause everyone does this to a certain degree. Now, now Ole Miss was going hyper tempo in, in very select circumstances. Saban mentioned the, the fourth downs where, where Ole Miss was pretty up tempo in some of those and in some of the third downs and going nine for 17 there. But Ole Miss has been going hyper tempo really dating back to the Hugh freeze days. Alabama plays Auburn, Every year, Gus Malzahn is kind of the godfather of of tempo in in offenses. Uh, Mississippi State hasn't huddled in like a decade. Um, other other schools that, that Bama sees somewhat regularly have up tempo offensive elements to them. This is something you do every single week to the point that, frankly, when you face someone like a Texas A and M or a Tennessee that doesn't do that kind of thing. Your defenders should be looking around at each other bored before the snap because they're so used to doing everything they do at such a high tempo. They're so used to getting ready for the next snap so quickly after the previous snap that when someone actually does huddle or stands around for like 10 seconds and takes their time, they should be looking around at each other bored, wondering what they should be doing because they don't operate that way. That's what that's what should be happening. You should not be caught off guard by tempo in this day and age. I just don't know that that's, that's acceptable. 
Well, and and I'll say that even in the way that you practice, you know, there there are going to be certain situations where it's more fundamental learning, and you're not going to necessarily want to go tempo because you want to make sure guys are getting it right. But especially defensively, everything you do in practice should be at a very high tempo where you're running. Yeah, where you're essentially running around, and you get guys used to everything is moving a, a hundred miles an hour, but this is how I remain calm. This is how I get through it. You practice getting through it, and I, that's exactly what you're saying, and that's what they need to be doing. And granted, during the media viewing period, I know that that stuff doesn't go on. Uh, but at the same time, when things you know become closed door, what does end up being the case? Um, you know, Are you practicing tempo? with every single thing that you do essentially, or are you being a lot more relaxed as you're doing install and stuff like that? That's, you know, I understand from a learning, but you need to be specifically designing these guys' minds to be able to remain calm when the pace and everything around you seems extremely hectic. And if you don't have that ability, you know, we even saw it with veteran guys like Dylan Moses against Ole Miss, where even people like him who have seen a lot of, uh, of snaps, very bright kid, still struggling to, you know, put himself in the right position, was not playing as confidently. Uh, I mean, it was – and Christian Harris looked completely lost, especially early in that game. It really never got too much better, but it did get a little bit better. But, I mean, even guys like that who, you know, you sit there and say, okay, well, he's young. He's still only a sophomore. He's seen plenty of starts, plenty of action. It shouldn't be happening to that degree. And it happened from essentially the first snap of the game. And that is where it falls on coaching. And I'll continue to reiterate, and this does not make Alabama fans happy. I'm not trying to take shots at Nick Saban. I'm just saying that if, if you know, based off of what I know about good football coaches, they want to shoulder their responsibility when things are going wrong every bit, bit as much as they want to shoulder their responsibility when things are going right, or they really don't want to shoulder responsibility at that point. They want to pass it off to their players, and that's what makes great coaches great. But, you know, you can't sit here and, and have all this hatred towards Pete Golding and not say one negative thing about Nick Saban because I understand you know what people the default is well Nick Saban you know when he had Jeremy Pruitt and he had Kirby Smart you didn't see these issues so the so the the the, the difference is Pete Golding well I also think it's a difference between when those guys were coaching the defense and what offenses are throwing at you nowadays uh, and, and, and Jeremy Pruitt had the, the benefit of having Lane Kiffin be his own offensive coordinator and not throwing that offense at him, uh, you know, going against him. You know, he had that benefit. And I'm telling you, Lane Kiffin, from an offensive mind standpoint, one of the most brilliant guys as far as his ability to to throw curveballs, to be able to keep you uh, off of your game, make you uncomfortable every time you're stepping on the field, whether you're a coach, whether you're a player, he he takes you out of your comfort zone and he keeps you there. And it's very difficult to go. I mean, and you're seeing it and granted you can Florida continues to struggle. You can't point to that game and say, well, you saw it for Florida's defense and Florida's defense is really good. But what I will say is that there just doesn't seem to be anybody in the sec right now that is able to consistently stop anybody. And, and I'm outside of Georgia and I'm still not 100% on board. And like I said, if they come out and they go 50-50 with Alabama's offense, I say that's a win. You can go ahead and put Georgia's in the uh, Georgia's defense in the elite category. Probably still would consider it in the, the elite uh, category anyways. It's just we've seen in the past, you know, Alabama's 
top-notch defense goes against Clemson in the national championship, the offense prevails. It's back and forth. Georgia had an elite defense when they played Oklahoma's offense uh, in the first round of the college football playoff a couple years ago, and mm-hmm. Oklahoma's offense had their way with Georgia's defense. They, they they set the tempo of that game, and George, you know, Oklahoma's defense was just so bad that uh, you know George was able to, to to outscore them essentially. But you talk about elite defense versus elite offense. Elite offenses nine times out of 10 prevail. It's just, and that's why I say, even if Georgia's defense has a 50, 50 success rate against Alabama's offense and is able to get stops consistently enough stops to where, you know, if Alabama's defense continues to struggle, if you're Georgia, you're approaching this game. And this is why I think that Alabama sets up very well against Georgia, because I don't think Georgia's offense is built to do that. And so even if your defense is winning half the time and you're getting pretty consistent stops when the, you're not getting those stops and Alabama is putting points on the board. Do you have the offense, even against what is seemingly a very bad Alabama defense is, is Stetson Bennett going to go out there and be, uh, you know, uh, Matt Corral or, or Joe Burrow. We'll talk about that more tomorrow. I don't want to dive too far into that. Uh, plenty of discussion, but I just think that, uh, right now, uh, there's enough that's falling on the coach's shoulders where something needs to be done and Nick Saban has to step up and he has taken responsibility as far as, you know, publicly, but, you know, do what you need to do to get it fixed and, and getting it fixed is not getting it back to the elite status. It was back in 2011 and 2012. It's just the, 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 the days with the offense that you're, that are thrown at defenses, those days are long gone. But getting it to a point where when you're going against one of those elite defenses, you're getting stops about half the time. And what we saw against Ole Miss was literally, you know, any time Ole Miss stepped on the field, they were putting points on the board, especially in the second half. And Lane Kiffin, you know, and, and from the time that he did it, I did not agree. I loved the decision to, to onside kick. I loved that aspect. I did not like the decision to kick the field goal because what he did was he gave Alabama just enough daylight to create a gap which you had to know if you were Lane Kiffin, our defense hadn't gotten a stop. They're not going to get a stop. And us kicking a field goal, you know, at the, at the end of the day, it, you know, it's points. And, and in most games, that would be the, the move. But in that game, you go for it. And if you come off the, the field, I mean, if you, if you walk off the field with zero points, that's still better because, you know, at, at that point, they were still, it was still a two. If you don't convert, you're down two scores. If when, when Alabama inevitably scores, but you you do convert the field goal and you still get down two scores when Alabama inevitably scores, so it didn't help you either way. So I just I didn't understand that decision, uh, but Alabama's defense it, big concerns. I I thought since you mentioned it and we can talk about something other than the defense for just a second. I'm sure we'll we'll get back to more of it. I, I thought Lane's decision making in big moments of the game was was kind of inconsistent like in early in the second quarter it's fourth and five on the 21 they go for it and they complete an 18 yard pass to Jerry and Ely and they score on the next play and I thought that was I thought that was kind of the the tone setter like Lane is is doing Lane things he's going to be aggressive he's going to he's going to try to take it to Alabama and kind of command the game state and and I was like that's probably what you need to do if you're Ole Miss going up against Alabama because that's certainly what Hugh Freeze's Ole Miss's Ole Miss teams that beat Alabama did so sure that sounds great and then they get the ball back with one minute left in the first half and they don't even attempt to to score especially 
against a, an Alabama team that under Nick Saban has traditionally been very conservative at the end of the first half. So one, you're, you're probably not worried about getting stonewalled three times and Bama using all three timeouts and, and you're having to punt to him with like 45 seconds left. But two, even if you did punt to Bama with 45 seconds left in the first half, Bama's probably just going to run it out because that's what they've always done under Nick Great State. point. So, so yes, there, there, I mean, there's the possibility of a turnover and an interception might lead to a field goal or, or a touchdown, but you're laying Kiffin. You don't care about those things. And you Go have for it, you have to Go take the it. risk. You, you know, you're the team that's not expected to win. Those are the kind of situations where you take the risk. And, and with Alabama getting the ball to start the second half, that was your opportunity when the yes. game tied 21-21, where you now make Alabama be the, re- the reaction. Because the entire game, it was Alabama, you know, Ole Miss was either playing for a tie or they were playing for uh, the, the, Alabama was was either going to be tied with Ole Miss or up by seven because exactly. of the way that the game script was kind of playing itself out. That was your chance to flip that and make Alabama be the reactive team, and they didn't do that. And that's why I like the onside kick. Exactly. What it would have done is if they would have in that situation gotten it, now it's not them trying to constantly play catch-up with Alabama's offense. It's now we've gotten the ball with the game tied we go up seven because their defense can't stop us either. And now it's Alabama playing for a tie while you're constantly playing for a lead. Uh, so yeah, I can, that's a, that's a fantastic point. So, so and the onside kick was kind of going back to that fourth down attempt early in the game. Like it, you're, you're back to taking it to Bama. You're back to trying to aggressively change the game state instead of letting the game state come to you through your, your quality of play. You, you do that. But then, as you mentioned, you kick that field goal in the fourth quarter, which is is more or less as good as a punt or as good as a turnover. Like Cecil made a joke on Twitter how um, field goals in that game were basically like Bitcoin, like just <laughs> worthless, you know? Like yeah. there's just nothing that, that a field goal offers you in that game when – let me pull up the drive chart. There were 23 possessions – and six of them did not end in touchdowns. So 17 of the 23 possessions in the game ended in touchdowns. A field goal is worth nothing. Yeah, and two of those were in the game and end of half. Oh, sorry, seven, seven. Uh, let me let me make sure. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Technically eight. So I I missed two because the the field goals were put in a way that, that made them look like touchdowns on the on the drive chart. So it's actually 15 well, of, yeah. of the 23 but, possessions in the game ended in touchdowns. But it, the point remains, uh, a field goal in that game is worthless. Yeah, and two of those drives were end of game and end of half. Uh, so those, those to me, those don't really count because if you'd have given them time to where they could right. actually run their offense. They probably would have scored. Yeah, so you know, you you had what uh, three punts in the first half and the fumble on the goal line for Alabama, which everybody knows was was very fluky, and that should have you know that should have resulted in, in points for for Alabama. So really, there was three punts, and outside of that, the, and then one field goal. And those were the only times in the entire game where the offense was actually stopped. And so that, yeah, that's that's a very good point. And even, you know, everybody thinks that that Lane Kiffin lulled Alabama to sleep at the end of the game uh, where he essentially, 
uh, calls two when out they get down by two scores. He calls a couple of running plays. It looks like Ole Miss is is kind of you know conceding almost. It was weird. And then he hits him for the massive play. But to me, you still wasted a lot of time to do that when you really didn't have to lull Alabama to sleep and then hit them for a big pop. You were hitting them for big pops from the get go. So you just wasted. Uh, you know, essentially, you know, probably if I had to go back and look, probably at least a minute between those couple of first couple plays, just running things very normally. It was just, it was strange. Um, and, and so, yeah, the, the inconsistencies with Lane Kiffin there, I thought was weird, but obviously you got to give him credit. I mean, it, it was a great game plan. Uh, and, and what's interesting is, I mean, I think he's going to be the first coach. That, you know, and granted, there's still a couple of, of tough games coming up. Georgia could certainly beat Alabama this weekend. Uh, but if that if that doesn't happen, you've made it through this wave. Uh, and, you know, well, I guess you got Tennessee, too, right after. And if that doesn't happen, you've made it through this wave of former coaches. And now you can kind of – you're good for the rest of the year unless you see Kirby again in the SEC championship. But point being, Lane Kiffin could very well end up being the first assistant coach that beats Alabama because he had – the perfect game plan. And Nick Saban and the coaching staff, you want to say, will be uh, better prepared the next go around. And they, I'm sure they will be. But Lane, just the way he switches stuff up, if you don't think he's not going to be throwing out a whole new set of, of, of problems for Alabama to deal with, he's that kind of coach. And, and I that's do a, think that's a revelatory thought, Clint. Where'd you hear that first? What do you mean? The, the prospect of Lane being the first former Saban assistant to beat him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was what huh. we talked about last week. Yeah. And 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 what's uh, crazy I, I bet a really intelligent, handsome person said that first. <laughs> well, what's crazy is, is you know, I was sitting there the, the night of the game thinking, man, that it looks like that actually might have a legitimate chance of coming true <laughs> way sooner than we thought. Uh and and you know, I still say this is why I and I remember talking about this on the podcast, you know, well over a year ago. This is why when when you know Auburn fans were starting to get frustrated with Gus Malzahn last season, I said, I think you need to go after a guy like Lane Kiffin. He's going to be a thorn in Nick Saban's side. And it is the perfect he's not afraid to go against Nick Saban. He's not afraid to recruit against him. He's not going to be, I don't think, any sort of elite recruiter, but you know, you if you're doing this kind of stuff against Alabama and, and you would have been doing it in state, uh, I think that that helps your, you know, your you to further your recruiting ability within the state and within the surrounding states because everybody's like, man, this is really that was a toss up game. Alabama won by 15, but it, that could have gone to anybody. Uh, and and so if I I think that was a huge miss for Auburn. I think that Lane Kiffin was the absolute perfect guy to have targeted and gone after. Uh, you know, there are very few people. Everybody talks about, well, if, if you get rid of Gus Malzahn, who are you going to go get this any better? Uh, especially when they're having to go against Nick Saban, who would want to come here? And I just thought that, that was the perfect storm where Lane Kiffin was the perfect uh, replacement option. And I guarantee you he would have loved to have been at Auburn because Ole Miss, by, back when I was talking about this, that, you know, you didn't see that from, from Matt Luke and, and fans talking about getting rid of him quite yet. And so now Lane Kiffin's at Ole Miss. He's got the offensive firepower he needs, and he is going to be a thorn in Nick Saban's side and everybody else in the SEC West. And he has fully embraced his style of team for this year. And he's going to try to improve his defense over time. But for now, he's, you know, outside of kicking that field goal, which, like I said, I thought that was very strange. He completely is on board with we're not going to stop anybody. Every time our, our feet touch the field, we're going to try to put points on the board. 
in order to, you know, to stay in games. And it's kept them in every game they played. And they were, they were played close against Florida. They beat Kentucky and they played Alabama close. They have not been blown out by anybody and they certainly look like they belonged. And so, yeah, I I think that he was the perfect hire for Ole Miss and, you know, we'll see what happens moving forward. I'd like to point out that in the preseason, when we did a, a pod with, specific predictions on on Alabama's season one of them was the bounce back guy and uh your selection was Pete Golding yes yes I trust me I remember uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you know what I took that idea and we decided to make it like an SEC thing on um on a, a like an SEC thing on a on, on on more of a conference level for the radio show that I'm on uh-huh. and I picked Jared Garantano as my kind of bounce back guy so I'm I'm batting no for two uh, huge swings and misses and, and my co-host actually picked Felipe Franks and he hadn't looked amazing, but he's definitely bounced back compared to, you know, the, the two that I picked. So well, maybe look, just don't I, ask me for a bounce back player ever. I bounced that guy with DJ Dale. So it's not like I'm, I'm kidding either. Uh, but, but you know, who is killing it is Wickles pickles with pickles, relishes, okras, a sandwich spread and much more. They're bringing spice to your life and it's what you need to forget about that Alabama defensive performance. It's a family recipe that is 90 years making here in the state of Alabama. Go to WicklesPickles.com to learn more about all of their products. Wickles Pickles, let's get wicked. We're, we're, we're up against it. I need to I need to jet in a few minutes to get on the, the Zoom call with Saban. But I think we should take a few minutes here to do what basically no one else is doing and discuss Alabama's offense. After that game, because (laughs) the defense, rightfully so, uh, not not criticizing here, rightfully so, has has taken all of the attention since it is uh, by far the most newsworthy aspect of all of this. But we are coming off of a game where Alabama racked up 723 yards of offense. They averaged 10.2 yards per play. Mac Jones was 28 of 32 for 417 yards. And two touchdowns. Najee Harris ran for 206 yards and five touchdowns. He actually cracked the top 10 in school history for career rushing yards along the way. Brian Robinson Jr. ran for 76 yards and a touchdown. Um, Devontae Smith, uh, absolute rebel killer. He ha- he had like 200 and something yards against Ole Miss last year. This year he has 13 catches for 164 yards and a touchdown. Waddle had 120 receiving yards on six catches. And the the offense, no one is talking about the offense because the defense was such an abomination. So I feel like we need to give a few minutes to just heap some praise on that unit. Yeah, and I think the big reason for that is what Alabama did to Ole Miss's defense was somewhat expected. Uh, and granted, I think that people expected Ole Miss to have success against Alabama's defense. They just didn't expect that level. You know, zero tackling, third down conversion rate was impressive. Four for four on fourth down, pretty much just moving the ball at will. You would have thought that it that it was you know Ole Miss's defense they were going against when they stepped out on the field. Uh, but for Alabama, from an offensive standpoint, really couldn't have uh, performed any better. They did everything that you could have possibly have asked them to do. And people will point to this game and say, well, that was Ole Miss's defense. Well, yeah, but there's plenty of other people who have stepped out there and not, 
you know, been as consistent as Alabama's offense against Ole Miss's defense. Everybody's had success, but it was the amount of success that matters in this particular game. And when you got Najee Harris going for over 200 yards and five scores, uh, you know, and granted, Mac Jones throws for over 400 yards, only has two touchdowns, but that's because you had Najee Harris. You know, once it got to a certain point, you hand him the football and he finishes the rest. You don't need Mac Jones throwing for four or five touchdowns. But yeah, and the offensive line looked pretty good. Alex Leatherwood struggled a little bit in pass pro, in my opinion. But from a run blocking standpoint, I thought Alex Leatherwood looked fantastic. Uh, you know, there were there were other guys that I thought looked pretty good as far as their pass protect, or excuse me, not from the pass protection, but their run blocking. Pass protection across the board was solid for the most part. Landon Dickerson, you know, solid pass blocker. But it, we didn't have really any guys that I saw or noticed uh, step up as, as far as being a complete offensive lineman to to the degree of dominance but there was a solid performance across the board love getting uh miller forestall involved in the conversation as far as getting in that touchdown this is a very good alabama offense and the way that it can attack you even a good and everybody's worried about you know well that you know georgia's defense you know that they're um they're they're by far the best defense alabama's going to play and and they're not going to be the same as Ole misses and i completely agree but there's a flip side georgia has not seen anything close to alabama's offense and the way that it can attack you uh from from multiple different ways and i think that lends you know to alabama i think the more important aspect of this i think alabama's going to have plenty enough success against a very 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 good georgia defense to win the football game to me it's all going to come down to what stetson bennett and that Georgia offense can do against a very vulnerable Alabama defense right now. And if they can match what Alabama can do and kind of make it an outscoring type of game and not an outscoring 63-48, but I'm talking, you know, a 42-35 or a 38-30 or something like that, I kind of put it in that kind of range. I definitely think overall it'll be a lot more offensive success for both teams than defensive success. Uh, But, you know, it's going to be a fun game to watch and, I just, you know, I've continued to reiterate on Twitter. I think, uh, you know, Alabama matches up a lot better against Ole Miss than, or excuse me, against uh, Georgia than Ole Miss. But for now, the, you got to keep giving this Alabama offense and Mac Jones in particular tons of praise because he's. Ex- it's it's nice to for us to have kind of you know tooted his horn all off season. And for him to step up and do what he's done, because, you know, we, we kind of we, I'll be honest, I expected Mac Jones to have plenty of success. I didn't expect him to have this amount of success. I'll go ahead and tell you that right now. Did you No, that's uh, and uh, you and I were d- despite your uh, your Twitter reputation, you you and I were were pretty pro Mac Jones this offseason. That's that's something I might have to explore later in the week, the the statistical output of of mac jones we, we mentioned on on last week's podcast that he averaged 16.1 yards per attempt against texas a&m which is something Tua never did his, his high was 16.0 against uh louisiana lafayette one year so so Tua never even got to 16 yards per attempt um against an sec team or against a power five team and, and mac did that in his in his second game as the full-time starter it's i guess also, a good a&m defense too absolutely absolutely uh i mean the texas a&m what they do the next week you know yeah. they got got absolutely. a pretty got a pretty big win over over florida which was also funny to me because uh, we mentioned this on the texas a&m preview pod last week too how 
I, I did some some radio spots and podcasts in Aggieland, and they were just wanting some optimism, some some reason to believe that the the thing was going in the right direction. And while the the Alabama game may or may not have given them that, I didn't uh, I didn't have the wherewithal to check in on on Aggies after the game. Um, that I'm sure they feel it now, having having beaten Florida in their place. So. Um, there, there's something to be said for, for what Texas A&M has going on right now. And, um, and, and Mac Jones did that to them, uh, greatly helped by his wide receiver core, but Tua had the benefit of some pretty good wide receivers here too. And he, he never put up a number like that. So there's, there's something to be, be said for that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to do some statistical digging on, on Mac Jones to try to put some of this in context, because this is what, what he's done this year is just out of control and and frankly here let's wrap with this because because again i gotta get on a zoom call is there a is there a secondary in the sec that really scares you this year in terms of something that can bring this pass game crashing down to earth uh no um and that that george is going to be the best opportunity by far They're, they're with eric stokes richard lecount uh um What's his name? I'm drawing blanks on names right now. Uh, Campbell. I think that they're absolutely loaded in the secondary, and that's what you need. And they also have the pass rush that could cause Alabama some problems. You know, you take some pressure off of that defense or that secondary. But at the at the end of the day, I think that Alabama can attack you in way too many different ways to be able to. It's it's not a matter of of stopping Alabama. It's it's you're trying to approach that game saying, hey, let's 50-50 this thing. Let's put the trust in the offense to, to get things done against, like I said, I called them before, a vulnerable defense, and we can win this football game. We're very capable, but you're not approaching it saying, we're going to completely shut this offense down. I don't think anybody in the country has a secondary or a defense you know, overall that could do that. Uh, well, uh, I'd, I'd love to see these numbers continue on, uh, just to see the, the statistical impact, like the – the what it does for the record books and 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 the the context of everything. The only shame is that if Bama does take this all the way, it only being a thirteen game season as opposed to fifteen. Yeah, and and what you know, I didn't mean that Alabama was going to keep up this level. True. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. It's it, it's definitely that's. I don't want anybody going to be like, man, you thought they were going to. No, I just think that being able to consistently stop Alabama for four quarters to a point where you hold them to 24 points. And granted, we saw it, I guess, with Joe Burrow and LSU last year. Um, that was a seemingly unstoppable offense, and Auburn had some success as far as the scoreboard, not really from a yardage standpoint, but they held, I think, LSU to like 24 points and barely lost that game. And so you can sit there and say there might be a game where maybe Alabama is held to 24 points, but I'm just saying I couldn't look at any particular team and say that's the team that's going to do it. You know, if, if it happened, it would have to be some – crazy kind of stuff happens. Some things go right for the opposing defense, some turnovers uh, and things like that. And, you know, so we'll kind of have to see, but what you can't do if you're a team, you know, you, you can't even attack uh, Alabama's offense like you did LSU's last year, because granted Clyde Edwards, a layer was starting to become that guy, but he wasn't known as that guy yet. And really it was Auburn that was selling out for the past, you know, with, with having five or six defensive backs in the field at a time, that they were able to take advantage with Claude Edwards a layer. Uh, but with Alabama, you got Najee Harris, and everybody's going to respect him. So you can't attack that passing game like you did with Joe Burrow last year. So I just, I don't know. Um, but yeah, uh, that's going to do it for another episode of the Bama Beat Podcast brought to you by Wickles Pickles. Brett, always appreciate you hopping on here with me. I know you got to go. 
but we'll be back on here tomorrow talking a lot more Georgia, Alabama in depth should be a fun conversation. So stick around for that. Beautifully timed. Yes. Yeah. 